0: A while back, we talked to Eric Warner, who played a pivotal role in funding the blossoming behavioral economics movement. He's gotten to know plenty of people in that world. And as we were doing introductions, he had a question for us.
1: So, you're a
2: psychologist?
0: See, Tim, Kurt, and I, who are making this podcast, we're kind of a mixed bag. And the pointed question threw us for a minute.
2: Uh, no, I'm, I'm not. I've, I've been a practitioner. Uh, I've worked in these. It was center. clear
0: that Eric had learned to sort the world into these groups economists, and psychologists.
1: I'm not a credential type, so it's fine with me. But I'm just, am I dealing with economists or am I dealing with psychologists, that sort of thing? Oh.
0: (laughs) What what would the difference be?
1: You know, the degree of hostility, I suppose, would be, you know, that economists are generally over on the hostile uh, side. Psychologists are more open-minded. You know, economists have a theory. And if you have a theory, you can get very defensive because inconvenient facts can cost you a lot. Psychologists, in my view, are kind of more open-minded, more empirical. They're interested in sort of lower-level empirical generalizations, and one fact is as good as another uh, or, you know, potentially as interesting as another. So, I mean, that's it. I just made that up, but, you know. That was <laughs> you know. But
0: this is like the fundamental tension about this field of so-called behavioral economics. This field that wants to understand economics, but pushes back on the classical economic theories, leaning instead on insights from psychology. It needs economics, and it needs psychology. But neither economics nor psychology quite get along with each other.
1: What we did when we put the program together Starting a slum was always make sure that we had both economists and psychologists on the advisory committee, and trying to create a sort of culture of acceptance of both sides. You know, they're 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 bound to be at each other's throats, but it's like the a temporary truce, and uh, you know, and getting and seeing what you can do while the white flags are up on both sides.
2: Listening to They Thought We Were Ridiculous, The Unlikely Story of Behavioral Economics, a five-part podcast series on a radical idea in economics that shaped the way we see the world.
0: So far, we've seen how a handful of economists started to take issue with a standard economic assumption that people will make rational decisions. And a pair of Israeli psychologists blew the door wide open with their careful experiments showing just how irrational people's decisions can be. A movement was growing, and a motley crew of academics had started to assemble a pile of evidence that people make economic decisions in curious ways.
3: In this episode, we explore the movement's identity crisis, how it was hard to find a home in economics or psychology, and whether that label, behavioral economics, does the movement justice. From Behavioral
2: Grooves, this is Tim Houlihan. And Kurt Nelson. And from Opinion Science, this is Andy Luttrell. Episode 3, Children of Unlikely Parents.
3: From the beginning, the goal was to push back on mainstream economics. And they didn't do it quietly by holding secret meetings in an empty basement. They were publishing new challenging papers in esteemed economics journals.
0: I always picture it like a punk band railing against the man, rocking out in the middle of Wall Street. Except, instead of leather and mohawks, it's a bunch of nerds with a sense of humor presenting at conferences. But like, basically, punk rock. One of the most antagonistic voices in those days was tie-dye clad Matt Rabin, who is now a professor at Harvard. But in a 1998 paper, he wrote that economists have shown, quote, aggressive uncuriosity about behavioral research. Here's his colleague Drajan Prelik.
4: Not Rabin. Uh, went after economists. His target was rational economists. And so he really wanted to duel it out. Whereas I would I would have been happy maybe as a psychologist to ignore them. But he he he, he wanted to not to stamp him out, but really, so, so he, he was like that. Well, I, I get the feeling that Richard was kind of that way, though, too. He kind uh, of... Yes, yes, but, but Matt was more so. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about Richard. Richard Thaler. In episode one, we covered the series of articles he published called Anomalies. He was presenting pretty hefty challenges to typical economic predictions and doing it on their home field. When we talked with Danny Kahneman, he said this was critical.
5: Those columns were extraordinary. They, they were funny. They, and they were about a series of phenomena that uh, are absolutely demonstrably true and violate standard theory. Every one of them. And they could be read by any economist. And to my mind, that's the key that it was a combination of a massive amount of empirical support through the anomalies. And speaking of Danny
2: Kahneman, in the last episode, we heard about his groundbreaking work with Amos Tversky on prospect theory, a theory of the errors in people's decisions. That first paper was published in a mainstream economics journal called Econometrica.
5: Economists were going to be confronted by it, the story of the field and of behavioral economics would have been very different if we would submitted the same paper to Psychological Review, because no economist would have, you know, they, they wouldn't look at Psychological Review. I mean, people were really in their silos, and economists really did not, a few of them saw the science paper. But it, the one in Econometrica, because of the prestige of the journal, that was taken relatively seriously. And how did economists react to these psychologists saying that people make biased judgments? Economists thought that the whole thing was ridiculous. And, and, and they also thought that the work on heuristics was ridiculous.
1: There are all kinds of people who wanted to swoosh us.
2: That's Eric Warner again.
1: There's one infamous conference at the University of Chicago where a lot of bigwig financial economists were there to tell us why we were wrong and sort of make fun of of us in one way or another.
2: That conference was a meeting led by Robin Hogarth and Mel Rader in 1986. The idea was to give behavioral economics its first showdown. It brought together the old guard who were committed to the rationalist model and the new crew of social scientists who thought psychology had a key role to play in understanding economics. The two organizers, Hogarth and Rader, were professors at the University of Chicago. Hogarth was part of the newer generation who was on board with applying psychology to economics. Rader was very old school, but curious about this newfangled behavioral stuff. And Chicago was the perfect place for a meeting like this. Chicago had that reputation for being very
6: hardcore rational choice theory.
2: That's behavioral economist Colin Kammerer. So it's
6: kind of, that was part of their point was, if we're having this weirdo meeting here, it has a little bit more of an imprimatur of of you know something at least at least the the debate was of of widespread interest. Um, and there were some really testy parts, I think, not so much not so much in the talks. There wasn't that much time for like yelling and shouting, but um Merton Miller, for example, he was really hardcore,
3: yeah. Let's talk about Merton Miller. Merton Miller was born in Boston in 1923. During World War II, he was an economist in the U.S. Treasury Department's Division of Tax Research. And he went on to get his PhD in economics at Johns Hopkins and spent most of his career at the University of Chicago. He was a beast. He won a Nobel Prize in 1990 for his work in corporate finance. He helped shape modern financial economics. And he made quite an impression at this meeting. Eric Warner again.
1: The mean one I remember, because it's like humiliating experience, was Merton Miller, who was is very funny and, and could make us seem very stupid. And I think Thaler just couldn't resist. So they were they had a very
6: kind of snarky back and forth. But you know, and it, it, it was
3: unfortunate too because Fama and Miller. Fama is Gene Fama, another ardent defender of a rationalist view at that meeting. Fama and Miller,
6: in their time, were very radical. Right. And so you might think he would appreciate the radicalism of Thaler, but Thaler's radicalism was attacking him and it wasn't the same as him attacking others. So it's just like, you know, I actually had a small record label that made punk music and that was pretty radical. But now my son listens to pop smoke and I don't think that's music. (laughs) Right. It's, it's, you know, it's like that.
3: Right. About 10 years after the contentious conference, Richard Thaler was hired as a professor at the University of Chicago. As he writes in his book, Misbehaving, Merton Miller was not too happy about it.
7: He was here when I came. And after my appointment was announced, a reporter asked him why he hadn't blocked it. And he said, I didn't block it because every generation has to make their own mistakes. Which, you know, it it wasn't really an appropriate answer, right? I mean, if they hire some guy that I disapprove of, uh, I'm not going to say anything to a reporter. I'm going to say it's a big tent, you know? So uh, he took it more personally.
3: But Thaler, true to his spirit, didn't let that comment get him down.
7: I did put up a sign saying, this generation's mistake.
1: <laughs> I'm a little annoyed <laughs> that how little recognition
0: social psychology gets for that. That's social psychologist Richard Nisbet. And he's referring to a sentiment that I think is at least somewhat common among social psychologists, which is that behavioral economics is a field that became really popular. But by calling itself behavioral economics, it felt like it wasn't giving enough acknowledgement to what was going on under the hood, which was some basic social psychological principles that we had known for a long time. My friend Lee Ross said that Behavioral economics is social psychology with a name change for business reasons. This has meant that psychologists themselves haven't engaged much with behavioral economics. Look around at a behavioral economics meeting and you won't see many psychologists. In some ways, it makes sense, though, because behavioral economics is all about challenging the rationality assumptions in economics, which psychologists don't have any stake in anyway. So as the movement grew, it remained firmly planted within economics. But these rigid, made-up lines between disciplines can be hard to navigate, as Danny Kahneman reflected about Richard, or Dick, Thaler's boundary crossing.
5: The irony of this is that Dick was insisting that only an economist can be a behavioral economist. Uh, and, and he really made life measurable to psychologists who wanted to call themselves uh, behavioral economists in the end it was dick who sort of took applied social psychology and turned it into behavior economics because that's basically what it is and so now social psychologists who want to do applied work have to call themselves behavior economists so that's the that's the ultimate irony because that was not what dick had in mind to begin with but in the end that's what it turned out to be although it is
4: uh, blurring into social psychology.
5: Drajan Prelik again.
4: And it's true that, you know, especially things that are associated with uh, uh, hidden priming influences, nudges, and that sort of thing are really uh, social psychology uh, redescribed as behavioral economics. I think what's actually going on is something much more interesting, that actually economics is generating its own psychology. So the influence actually runs From economics back to psychology, but if you look at what behavioral economists have done, uh, including Richard Thaler, a lot of them have developed, you know, very interesting psychology, you know, from almost scratch. I would say
0: this question of whether this new movement was happening in economics or psychology came to a head when the Russell Sage Foundation funded a summer institute in behavioral economics, where graduate students could come together and learn the latest in the field. The first one was in 1994, and it was run by Thaler, Kammerer, and Kahneman.
5: The summer camps were very important in the development of the field. They were solid, they were respectable, they were clearly attracting brilliant people who who took that as, you know, at the start of their careers. It was very influential. It was
8: super fun, like, very social, very, like, nerdy, and hang
0: out with everybody. That's Sendel Molinathan. He was a student at the first summer camp.
8: I guess the best way to describe it is imagine a bunch of people who were in their high schools and loved stamp collecting and they didn't know anyone else liked stamp collecting. And now you got put them together and somewhere for two weeks and with other stamp collectors. It's that kind of thing. It just so happens stamp collecting here was human decision making. And I think that was invigorating.
0: But running these summer institutes meant making some very deliberate decisions about who got to go. One of the co-organizers, Colin Kammerer. early in the summer camps,
6: there were we spent a lot of time thinking about what's the right mixture of, say, psychology grad students who know a lot about cognition and have good kind of finger knowledge about experimentation, and economic students who are kind of tone deaf about that and have never run experiments and what have you. And um, and it was very interesting to. Kahneman really wanted more psychology students. And I think in the first batch, we had like two or three. But it was clear that the, the predominant discourse was like the, the native language is economics. And they just couldn't kind of contribute, you know, even if they kind of understood, it was like they just weren't lingual enough. And Tversky said, oh, yeah, I, I don't think I don't think there's enough psychologists to invite who are who are interested at all.
5: The second year. Dick uh, refused to accept anybody but economists. And I was annoyed and we had conversations about this. And he explained that he didn't want behavioral economics to be a hybrid field. He wanted it to be an approach to economics. So he was completely strategic about this. I wonder if we
6: missed a chance to maybe Draw more behavioral scientists in, whether were through that summer camp or in some other way, um, and and that's also part of why there's a, a bit of resentment from people in psychology saying you're kind of stealing our products and pretending it's arts, which I you know I don't I try never to do that like on purpose, but it, you know it, as it gets out into this you know, this more popular science mold, you know that that confusion gets made.
2: Some of the field's identity crisis might have to do with its name, behavioral economics. What does that mean, behavioral economics? Actually, that's the question that sparked this whole podcast series. My friend, George Loewenstein, who we heard from already in this series, told me a story about when it was decided that the field would be called behavioral economics. I asked him to tell me that story again, for the record.
9: The whole group, we would meet together once a week and discuss some issue. One of the discussions was about what we would name the field. And I advocated calling it psychological economics. And Richard Thaler wanted to call it behavioral economics. And he's much better at selling things. But I was concerned that it was going to, in a lot of people's minds, it was going to create an association between behaviorism and economics. I mean, behavioralism is all about, all that matters is behavior, not what's going on in people's minds. And behavioral economics is centered on the idea that what happens in people's minds is really important. But in any case, Thaler was right as he so often is, and he prevailed and I'm glad that he did. And behavioral economics turned out to be a good name for popularizing what we were doing.
2: So, George recalls vividly that there was a meeting and a clear decision. The group declared that this field would be called behavioral economics.
3: But what's funny is that we asked a lot of people about the name behavioral economics, and everybody had a different take. Like, Thaler seemed to have no memory of a special decision being made at all.
0: Do you remember, like, the conversation that went into? Like, were you part of the naming (laughs) committee?
7: <laughs> no, and I don't know exactly I don't know exactly when it happened,
3: but it rang a few bells for colin Kammerer.
6: well, certainly by ninety four i think I think that there was a term in in judgment decision made called behavioral decision theory, and so I think behavioral economics really came from behavioral decision theory by the way the the language caused quite a bit of a bit of kerfluffle because Most economists would say economics is behavioral because we're trying to explain behavior. But we didn't, uh, personally, I didn't want to use a word like, at one point, I think Dick's first book that was a collection of of articles was called Quasi-Rational Economics, and that never took off. (laughs) I mean, now we're just stuck with this name, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, But, for example, at Stanford, they have a, a meeting every summer, and they refuse to call it behavioral economics, so it's called psychology and economics. And that's weird, too, because... No psychologists go to that. <laughs> but, you know, it's hard to, like, rebrand. No one's going to global replace behavioral economics. And so I, I think of it as, you know, limited rationality economics, if, if you were to call it something else. You know, that's sort of the real hallmark.
2: We also asked Eric Warner about the name because the programs he set up at Sloan and Russell Sage carried the behavioral economics moniker. So why call it that?
1: I mean, my standard answer to that question is that we called it that because we were cowards. I mean, I think it should have been cognitive economics, behavioral economics, which is a more kind of neutral term. We sort of wanted to sweep together anybody who had some idea about the principles of behavior. I think we should have called it cognitive economics, but it was kind of more neutral. We were already scandalizing people, we wanted to scandalize them. I said, the Old talks.
2: Danny Kahneman supposed that it was a pre-existing term that got quietly co-opted.
5: I was not involved in the naming. I think it existed. There were quite a few people, when, when the term began to be used, uh, there were quite a few people I remember uh, who really felt they were behavioral economists, but they were not disciples of dictator. And And in the end, the way that it's mostly defined they they still consider themselves behavioral economists, but but that's not the definition of the field.
0: It's funny we we have asked this question to so many people and everybody goes I don't know I think it was this and it's always a different. <laughs> it's just funny that that name that is yeah. stuck. It's like stuck so well. It's been I think it's been part of the success.
5: It's a very good label.
0: All right, Andy, the fact checker here. So Kahneman was right when he said the name was already around. I came across this great article by two historians of economics, and they traced the term behavioral economics back to the 1940s when it was popularized by the University of Michigan Survey Research Center. They didn't quite mean it the way we mean it here, but our friend Herb Simon, that guy who called for economic theories that acknowledged the limits of people's rationality, he started labeling these ideas as behavioral economics by the late 1950s. And then, as we suspected, it seems the key move was in the early 80s when Eric Wanner's programs at the Sloan and Russell Sage Foundations took on the name behavioral economics. So that settles that. And even though some people
2: might bristle at having to put a label on the movement— Maybe these fusion labels help, whatever they are. We'll hear more from him in the next episode, but David Halpern helped integrate ideas from behavioral economics into the British government. Finding a name for their unit was a surprising challenge.
10: You know, we could call it a behavioral economics You know, team. And we knew it would really annoy Danny and a number of other psychologists. And so... That's why we ended up with this slightly strange term, the behavioural insights team, because we wanted to emphasise that we wanted to draw from many academic disciplines, certainly psychology, anthropology, as well as economics. I'm sure Danny whispering in our ear would it, <laughs> reinforce that, you know, don't call it economics. I mean, literally in terms of the unit, we, we did think relatively, one of the, should we call it behavioural science unit. Um, but as soon as it would inevitably be initials in government, You know, it being the BS team was was not going to help our cause since people already thought that we were a bit, you know, on the edge. A lot of academic colleagues I notice now use these terms, behavioural science and so on. Um, It has a sort of fashion and power to it as opposed to being a plain old psychologist or a social psychologist or something. But at least maybe it does play the role of it blurs the boundaries between disciplines. And since, you know, history and philosophy of science, a lot of that story is around It's the interstices between disciplines where some of the richest thinking occurs. So if it helps bring a few wider disciplines together, not too worried about, you know, what they're called to think about a problem, bring it on.
0: In this episode of the series, we've played up this moment in time when economics and psychology came head-to-head. But these two disciplines have had a weird relationship for ages.
11: When my psychology colleagues say that, you know, this is just psychology in new bottles, you kind of say, well, it it depends on how far you want to go back.
0: Liam Delaney is a professor at the London School of Economics, and he's thought a lot about where behavioral economics fits in the bigger history of social science.
11: I think one narrative that you could think of is you had this very formal stylized discipline of economics in the 60s and 70s sitting alongside the development of social psychology and cognitive psychology. And they were very separate. The textbooks were very different. And then in the 80s and 90s, economists start using psychological language again. And you did have moments where, you know, you'll have an economist giving a seminar reinventing cognitive dissonance or something like that. Uh, which cause points of confusion. But I think, um, I do think both enterprises are, are older. They're doing a dance that's like several centuries old where these disciplines sort of come together and come apart in all sorts of different ways. And this is a new incarnation of it. And actually this enterprise that we now in ta- in increasingly call behavioral science, I think increasingly what's happening is they're shaking out the disciplines a little bit and, and coming back to something that's attempting to be more uh, more integrative. Sendel Molinothan
0: has a similar perspective. We heard from him a little bit earlier. He was a young student at the first behavioral economics summer camp in 1994. Now, he's a professor of behavioral economics at the University of Chicago, or at least that's his official title. I asked him how he labels himself. Given
8: up. I don't. I you don't. Know, I just I don't have it. I wish I had I, I wish I either had a label or was one of those people who would say things like I'm a Maverick. I like being a Maverick. I've always enjoyed it. like
0: Because he also sees these divisions between economics and psychology and behavioral economics as kind of silly. Practically, though, there was something about behavioral economics that made it not quite psychology and not quite economics.
8: There was a moment in history where psychology, and and you call it economics, it's basically axiomatic choice theory
0: intersected. By axiomatic choice theory, he's referring to the idea that there are a set of axioms or, like, basic rules that govern rational decision-making. It was reacting to this specific quirk in economic theory that defined the body of work that became behavioral economics.
8: That intersection allowed a very fruitful place for psychologists to say, your axioms are goofy, I will now show you. It gave a very clear baseline model and the act of rejecting that model proved very generative. So like, you you ever see these people in space like astronauts or like whatever, whatever. If they want to go in this direction, they need something to push off of. The push is what lets you move. I'm saying that because research is very often like this. People don't appreciate how something generative occurs because you have something to push against and off of in the other direction. If you say, "Oh, this rational choice model is wrong," I can show it, and I can, and it's very generative. You come up with the representative heuristic, all these beautiful heuristics. But the vector you're following is created by pushing off of the rational choice model. So it is also sort of limited.
0: The idea is that behavioral economics offered a really useful way for economics and psychology to meet up again in the grand dance that Liam Delaney described. And they got to say, look, these assumptions in neoclassical economics are wrong. But then what? what do we do now that the obvious connection between psychology and economics has stepped onto the dance floor again? And we realize maybe we never had a great reason to keep them separate in the first place.
11: We think disciplines are like these cathedrals that can never be replaced. Whereas in actuality, they're social constructs that, you know, they come and go uh, and how they're named. And it wouldn't surprise me if something... I don't know if it'll be called behavioral science, but it wouldn't surprise me if some integrative endeavor between psychology and economics is what the next generation of people fly to.
0: Sendhil has a similar vision for the future.
8: I think the central challenge facing social science right now in the next 30 years that it has to figure out is that division of labor it has historically construed is not going to work going forward. The current division of labor that we have, one department that studies psychology, One department that studies the economy, one department, like, what? Doesn't make any sense. This is just a weird way to cut stuff up. Suppose you have a student really interested in studying crime. Does it really make sense to segregate the students who do that with observational causal inference data in an economics department and the students who do that at the level of, you know, the psychology of criminal behavior. Like, if I want to study the psychology of criminal behavior, you're saying I can't be a psychologist? So there is this, like, oddity that that all these fields are just, we're all going to have to figure out how to just refactorize how we construct science. And it's going to be a fun 30 years, I guess.
3: So this scrappy behavioral economics movement weathered the disdain of classical economists and the side-eyed glances of psychologists to firmly establish itself as a force to be reckoned with. And along the way, it raised important questions about why we keep economics and psychology in their own silos.
2: But now that they'd taken on the man, it was time to level up. Time to fill the public in on what they were discovering and time to put its ideas to the test by seeing if they could inform business and public policy in the UK, US, and around the world.
10: If you had to take a guess of which of those were going to succeed, the behavioral insights team was definitely not going to be top of your pile. It was a slightly kooky idea. So yeah, set it up with a sunset clause. I had a moment where I literally moved to DC, get there, press hits
1: the next day, and I'm wondering whether it's going to get shut down 12 hours later.
3: That's next time on They Thought We Were Ridiculous.
0: They Thought We Were Ridiculous is written and reported by Andy Luttrell, Kurt Nelson, and Tim Houlihan. Editing and sound design by Andy Luttrell. Thanks to Ben Gramlin, Alex Belongi, and Alexa Cover for design and marketing. And thanks to Mary Califf and Caroline Schaefer for other assistance along the way. Music licensed from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Transcripts with key source citations are available. Just check out the episode webpage. Thanks to the guests whose voices you heard, including Eric Warner, Droshen Prelic, Danny Kahneman, Colin Kammerer, Richard Nisbet, Sendel Molinoffin, George Lowenstein, David Halpern, and Liam Delaney. This miniseries is a co production of two podcasts. Opinion Science is hosted by Andy Luttrell and explores the science of people's opinions, where they come from, and how they talk about them. Behavioral Grooves is hosted by Tim Houlihan and Kurt Nelson and explores our human condition through a behavioral science lens. You can find more information on both of those shows in the episode description.